Biden's new $3 trillion budget, and explosive allegations from a new book, all coming up next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Hey guys, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. We got a lot on tap for today. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to my good friend, good colleague, Clark Kent. No, I'm kidding. Vince <laughs> Colonnese. Hey, how you guys doing? Um, looks like a different person. Yeah, I know. Oh, Don't give it away. My secret identity. It's, it's exclusive to this limited audience. I, I see you do have like the little curl, the little Superman curl going I know. on right now. My mother-in-law is a big fan of that. She thinks that's the greatest thing ever. My wife, not so much. She's always, get fix that hair. Stop that. Uh, that's You know what that is actually the product of? It's an old injury. I, I, I slipped and fell. And this maybe explains everything about my life. I slipped and fell and hit concrete steps right there on the corner of my head when I was a kid and I got a little scar there and so what it does is it pushes that hair down uh but that was a brutal a brutal thing and and it may explain my politics literally everything about me um <laughs> the uh I want to I want to play now if you had universal health care yeah you know what I mean it would have been would have been all good no I'm kidding this, but this could have all been avoided say, I'd be I'd be was, agreeing with you all the time you and I'd be on the same right thing. that would be perfect I was gonna say you had a hair injury as a kid but sounds like it was a real injury i'm glad you're okay i'm glad you're here Thanks, with man. us today so that's Thanks, that's man. the most important thing and we can agree and disagree but i'm glad to be here with you amen thanks brother all right let me show, show you some video this is uh, joe biden yesterday at the national constitution center in philadelphia let's play this all right and i'll play this for you now so you can hear it is just such a threat literally i've said it before we're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. Since the Civil War. The Confederates back then never breached the Capitol, as insurrectionists did on January the 6th. I'm not saying this to alarm you. I'm saying this because you should be alarmed. All right. <clears throat> Now, Jason, that display yesterday in Philadelphia, I've got to be honest, I, I thought was disgusting, frankly. I mean, I, he, he says it's not hyperbole. What he's talking about are these states who are trying to pass uh, what I'm calling, because I believe it to be true, voter integrity laws uh, and places specifically Texas. That's the big one in the news this week. And the idea that what they're doing is in any way equivalent to uh, the atrocities that led to the United States Civil War is about as hyperbolic and as dangerous uh, rhetoric as you could possibly utter, I think. And so I was extremely disappointed in Joe Biden this week. And I really think that and we can get into the motivations here, like what, what's actually animating him. I, I think that there's an important conversation to be had there. But is he right when he uses analogies like that to suggest that asking people to write their voter ID number, excuse me, their driver's license number on an absentee ballot is equivalent to uh, a threat to democracy at the scale of the Civil War. Uh, is, is, is that even appropriate to be uh, saying in public? So I, I think that he was referencing a lot more than just the Texas bill. Um, so I think that that would be to take him a little bit out of context. Uh, I, I think what he was talking about is just overall talking about the election lie that led to violence 
uh, at the Capitol. And I, I think later on, he goes on and says that Confederates never breached the Capitol. Um, but insurrect, or I guess he, he said it in that clip, insurrectionists did do so. So that's where I think he was, he was drawing the comparison and the fact that there are many people who not only, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. I don't know if there was a time in American history where people believed some of the lies that they believe now, um, believe that, you know, their neighbors drink blood and, and kill babies. And, um, you know, and so I think he's, he's wrapping this all up into one. Um, and we know that politicians, if there's anything that politicians specialize in, it's hyperbole. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. is it absolutely uh, the uh, a, a one to one comparison? Um, you know, that that's debatable. And I, I would probably uh, agree with you that probably our, our democracy has been tested several times. In my lifetime, I would say that this is probably the most significant. I, I would say he's correct, but I haven't been alive since the Civil War. But I could definitely say in my lifetime, um, I think that we are facing overall. I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, what is it? Senate Bill 1 in Texas and House Bill 3. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't think that that's necessarily what he's talking about, but he's talking about what caused this, what created this, the fact that people are willing to believe outright lies with no evidence. And you and I, I think, I'm not sure, but I think we agree um, about the big lie. We agree, you know, uh, Sidney Powell got invited by our, our mutual friend onto his show and our mutual friend gave her the benefit of the doubt and said, give me your evidence. Mm -hmm. We're right here on national television, on the biggest show on, on cable news. Yeah. Give me your evidence. And Sidney Powell said, no, I'm not giving you the evidence. I don't have evidence. Then she started bringing in Hugo Chavez, um, you know, and you got crazy, you know, I don't know. I don't want to. I mean, I'll let you all and our audience decide for themselves, but people like Lynn Wood. Like those people Insane. are dangerous. You know what I mean? Like, and by the way, self, it was totally self-defeating. I mean, Lynn Wood is the reason that one of the huge reasons why Democrats captured both of those Senate seats in Georgia. For sure. Well, I think there was a lot involved in that, but well, Lynn, um, when Lynn Wood comes out and says, you have no reason to trust your election system, it doesn't even matter if you vote in the special election, then yeah, that's how Democrats end up winning two Senate seats in a place that they didn't expect to even have good odds of doing that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think people believe that Georgia, you know, I'd heard rumblings of Georgia flipping in, in 2012. People were saying Georgia could flip Georgia and Texas. That was the, the whole thing was there's a, a possibility that Democrats could take Georgia, Florida and Texas. Um, I thought it was wishful thinking. And I thought, of course, Florida and I probably thought Texas were more likely to flip than Georgia. Um, yes. But I, I do agree with you that um, undermining faith in the election system that worked in 2020 um, and that worked in 2018, um, I think actually did lead to some of the changes that we saw around the country, like 
people undermining it, being like your votes are stolen and all that, that did not help the Republican Party at all. So I, I agree with you there. But, you know, I think what Joe Biden, you know, who's been in government damn near since the Civil War, uh, <laughs> you know, hyperbole again, uh -huh. hyperbole. <laughs> we all speak in hyperbole, so I don't, I don't, an, an exaggeration. I don't think that that's a bad thing. You know, like there was somebody I remember who objected, um, and this is a left-wing person who watched our show. First of all, I want to apologize to all my MMA fans because some of my friends who watched the show who are really apolitical were like, you called him Justin Poirier, not Dustin. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so my bad. But uh -huh. in, in addition, you know, I, I think I, you know, I said something in, in a previous show about Trump saying the drink bleach. That wasn't exactly what he said, but I was, you know, it was being hyperbolic and I was exaggerating. I think that that's something that happens in, in politics. Um, it does. But I think Joe, Joe Biden, yeah. at least for my lifetime, I've never had this. I don't know anybody who's had this kind of anxiety in the last 40 some odd years um, of being aware of politics. Well, I think I think in our lifetimes, I think the Soviet Union posed a more legitimate threat to democracy worldwide than than what the Joe United Biden is States, talking about though? now. Uh, and well, yeah, I mean, but if he said to threats, our threat to our country, though, you know, no, I agree. I'm just saying threats to democracy broadly. And especially okay. if, if the Soviet Union was able to accrue more power, uh, eventually a threat to the United States. That's why we were fighting the Cold War the way we did. It was meaningful. Um, you know, and the idea that this is the most sincere threat to our democracy internally since the Civil War is is gross hyperbole because uh, and this is, you know, you don't this is specifically Democrat Party history. I mean, look back at the ways that, if we were going to talk about racial lines, that black people were kept from voting. These were democratic laws. Uh, you had, you know, poll tests and literacy tests and grandfather clauses. You had people who were physically murdered. I mean, you had gross sure. violence to prevent voting. That Those are real sincere threats to democracy that happened after the Civil War and that should not have happened but did. And to compare this moment where you have Republican states who are passing voter integrity laws to protect the rights to vote of everybody in the state. And I'll give you an example. So Texas this week, one of the things um, that Texas is looking to pass is that when you send in an absentee ballot that you write either your driver's license number or the last four of your social on, or your state ID number on the ballot in order to verify it's you in lieu of signature matching. Now, why is this important? Because signature matching is done by bureaucrats who stare at ballots and compare it to the original signatures and then make decisions about whether or not those signatures match. And then if they think they don't, they throw the ballot out and they don't count it. Now, in Georgia, we know that thousands of ballots this past election were thrown out on that basis and that disproportionately affected and hurt black votes. Black votes thrown out because the signatures didn't match. Now, Georgia just passed a law. That, that got struck down, I believe, in 2019, correct? Or, or, or signature know, matching? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. No, it was, didn't that get signature matching was still a part of this last election. There were thousands of votes that were tossed uh, mm -hmm. because they didn't match in signatures. So what Georgia did was they passed a law that said, okay, just write your driver's license number on there. And there's, there's, there's like a zero chance now that you'll have your ballot thrown out if your driver's license mat number matches the one that's actually in the system. That's what it, what they passed in Georgia. The Justice Department now, the Biden Justice Department is suing Georgia over that law. Um, 
And now, and now in Texas, they're doing the same thing. They want to add the driver's license number stipulation, the social security number you can use last four. These are, that to me is completely non-objectionable. Like I can't even begin to see why that particular provision would uh, raise concerns or even uh, be, I mean, it literally enfranchises more people. And I just, this this hyperbolic rhetoric, the idea that this is equivalent to Jim Crow laws, that's, we often hear those words. We heard, we heard them yesterday, is, is just so destructive. And I think that there's a good explanation for why this is happening. And I want to bounce it off you and see if you agree. Um, in the last election, what we saw in the United States is, yes, Joe Biden wins, becomes president of the United States. But meanwhile, Democrats did lose a lot of power uh, in the United States House and the United States Senate. And it looks like going into next year, they very much could lose the House and then potentially uh, two years after that, uh, if not before the Senate itself. And this is, this is a really fraught moment in terms of Democrats being able to secure power in the short term and especially in the long term. And so for that to happen, they need to make an existential case because they need to convince the public that the threats are so great that they need to um, change the way we handle a couple of key things. One of them is redistricting. Democrats are very nervous about redistricting nationwide. They think they're going to be out of power for a decade. Uh, so they need to move really swiftly to fix that. Another has been what we've talked about, getting people, getting a couple of states created in order to uh, create more Democrat Senate seats and hopefully Senate uh, Democrat House seats in order to give them more long-term power. And this, there's one other element, which is that this last election demonstrated that Republicans are becoming, the Republican base by and large uh, under Trump has becoming more of a multiracial working class coalition than Democrats expected. You mentioned Texas. Democrats have long thought that the demographic shifts in Texas would work to their benefit, but they didn't predict that uh, class divisions would actually start to separate, especially Hispanic voters who are now who have now moved uh, pretty meaningfully into the Republican column, a not not majority, but enough that it's actually really damaged those forecasts for Democrats. They it's not proving to be what they thought it would be. So I think all of that sort of the racial depolarization of the country we're becoming less racially polarized and that that's not that's not to democrats advantage uh, as it, as it stands right now and we're becoming um you know there's all these these threats to democrat power as these districts are being redrawn that they need to give us the most aggressive existential hyperbolic case for why um radical change needs to be done right now and it's it's a power play. So, um, well, again, politics are defined by power, you know. So I, I will I will never uh, deny that power is behind political moves and motivation. Um, right. So I think that that's true for any political party, any political entity. Um, that power is is involved in it. Yeah. Um, politics, I would define, I define it for my students as that which determines and maintains power. Um, so I, I, there, I, I would agree. I do think, you know, you and I have discussed Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia. 
Right. Um, and I think Puerto Rico, though many Puerto Ricans don't pay federal income taxes, they do pay federal tax. Puerto Rico pays federal taxes, as is Washington, D.C. Um, and I believe in no taxation without representation. So you can't have a place with literally three million plus citizens. And in the case of Washington, D.C., 600,000, um, where they are, are disenfranchised. That would have started a revolution in the 1700s. <laughs> Our founding fathers would have fought over that because they don't they didn't believe in taxation without representation. Um, I do think that and we could debate about washington dc but any other territory they would they would have certainly been like these are citizens and these people need representation uh unless you're black or native american um or woman but one of the things that i i would say in, in the comparison to jim crow is uh sorry my daughter was trying to get in the room uh, <laughs> to Jim Crow is, you know, and, and I've made this comparison with you before. Right. And there is, there was the Ku Klux Klan, right? Wild, violent, you know, uh, they were guys who would come and, and, you know, burn your house down, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fire shots at your home, intimidate you you know, sometimes rape people and in some cases kill people. Yeah. Then you got the White Citizens Council, which basically took the principles of the Ku Klux Klan, but they didn't wear masks to cover their faces. They wore suits and ties and they walked out and they gave speeches that didn't necessarily talk about hate, you know, they toned it down, but the principle was the same. And so I think when, you know, post Shelby County, people are very aware. And when we look at the Texas law, which isn't even the most restrictive in the country, but Texas, you know, is uh, one of the largest states in the country, both in terms of size and in terms of population. Right. Um, and it's one of those that will be a standard bearer. And so that's why Texas is so important and people are shining a light on Texas and of course, Georgia, because uh, a light was on Georgia um, post 2020 election. But when we talk about the intentions of the bill, mm -hmm. you brought up one point and I agree about, you know, signature matching. 80% um, of the people in Georgia who were disenfranchised were black in terms of um, sig signature matching. Right. But Texas, the early er iterations of the bill, they did drop this. They wanted to stop Sunday voting or they put restrictions on Sunday voting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were trying to shut down urban precincts. To me, that shows the true intention of the bill. It is to drive voter participation down, not to grow voter participation, which is what we saw in 2020, which was a beautiful thing. You give people more access to the vote. You make it easier for them to vote. You make it easier for them to schedule when to vote. 
you know, um, if people wanted, if you, you know, like you said, they truly want people to vote. Yeah. Voting should be a holiday, you know, um, something that Bernie Sanders and a lot of other people have been saying, why do we have to go to work? We give we give holidays for all kinds of things, but yet we don't have a, a holiday for Election Day. Um, if we want to expand the ability to vote, there are many ways to do that. And in this, in the name of so-called integrity, which I think this is a lack of integrity, you know, now and, and some of the worst parts of this Texas bill to me are that partisan poll watchers are empowered and it's harder to remove them and they can disrupt voting and vote counts. Now imagine, you remember uh, the drunk lady from, from, from Michigan? Remember the drunk lady, the drunk yeah, blonde lady? who testified, with, with, testified during that hearing. Yeah, she, she had her hair up in a, in a weird, messy bun. And she was mm -hmm. like, I think she looked intoxicated. I mean, even, even Rudy Giuliani was looking at her like, oh, man, you know, did I make a mistake bringing this person up here? Like, imagine she's, she's empowered to disrupt and actually keep people from casting their ballots or people's votes from being counted. And it's hard to get her removed because she's obviously a zealot who has, and, and again, partisan poll watchers are allowed to observe. Yeah. And, and allowed to make certain objections, but they can't sit there and disrupt aggressively. And this allows for them to do so, which is troubling and I think should trouble all Americans, but particularly I think people are, who, whose voting rights have been infringed upon in the past yeah. are worried about that this time around. These are the kinds of things now you have to um, fill out more, you know, someone has to fill out paperwork in order to take someone to the polls who's not a relative, uh, who's not a, a relative, you know, so that older lady who lives by herself, who may need a ride can't doesn't drive anymore. I think about like, I told you about my uncle Charlie, right, you know, mm -hmm. who, who passed away on Memorial Day um, at 108. 108, 109, I think it was 108, 108, you know, he stopped driving past hundred. He was still driving at hundred, by the way. Wow. <laughs> you know? uh, but, and I, and I have, I have tons of stories about him, but I won't waste our time with it right now. But, you know, he would have needed somebody to drive him. Now I don't live close, you know, that he lived in, in, in Loudoun County, Virginia. Mm -hmm. I live in Maryland, way far from him. I can't take him. My parents live in North Carolina. Like we can't physically take Uncle Charlie to go and uh, and vote. And right. he, I'm sure, was somebody who wanted to vote because he was alive during a time when black people, uh, their opportunities to vote were very much uh, curtailed. So he took the vote very seriously. He was, re I'm, I'm so happy that he got to vote for President Obama. That was one of the great moments in his life. Yeah, yeah. So I, these are all things that I think, some of the points you're raising, I think um, I agree with are, are legitimate points of debate that, you know, the Democrats, if the, if the Texas House Democrats, instead of pulling the publicity stunt they did this week and like, and like just abandoning their jobs, if they stuck around to actually negotiate those details of the bill, um, that could be productive, right? So Democrats actually did succeed in negotiating a couple of um, 
elements to the Texas laws. This is all missed from the news coverage, but like Democrats have had a had a hand in uh, creating what these laws look like. For uh, for instance, um, making sure people are notified if there isn't a signature on the ballot so that they can cure it. You know, after, and curing means that after your ballot's submitted, if there's a mistake, the state will get back in touch with you and say, hey, um, is this you and you need to fix this if so? And so they and people can do that. Um, another is that people are protected against a person being convicted of a crime if they vote a provisional ballot, but they didn't realize that they were ineligible to vote. So if you are ignorant of the fact that you are an ineligible voter and vote in a provisional ballot, you won't be convicted of a crime for that. You were you were ignorant of it. You didn't realize you couldn't do that. And so Democrats successfully made uh, got that uh, stipulation added to the Texas bill. You know, on this issue of uh, should voting be a holiday, I, I realize a lot of people want to debate that. But like this Texas bill, one of the things it does is requires employers to permit employees to vote early if they so choose and to not penalize them. So you can leave work that day and you can go and you can vote and an employer cannot stop you from doing that as an early voter. Early voting itself has hours that are expanded now from where they were pre-pandemic. No, you won't be able to do 24 hour a day voting in Harris County, which is what was permitted during the pandemic because of how unusual the circumstances of voting were during the pandemic. But this is more expansive than what Texas had before the pandemic. So just the the hysteria here has a purpose. It's and I don't think it's to serve voters in Texas. It's not to keep people from having their votes suppressed. There's no evidence that anybody is going to have their votes suppressed or has had their votes suppressed by laws like this. Delaware famously is Joe Biden's home state, has more restrictive laws than both Texas and Georgia. And and nobody's complained about Delaware's laws because there's no reason to complain about Delaware's laws. People know how to follow the rules and they do it and successfully each election. So, so I think the point of all of this is that Democrats want to pass H.R. 1. They want to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And they think that courtesy of those things, that will help them establish what the um, what the districts look like across the country and during this re- this important redistricting moment and give them advantages going forward. It's it's like I said, you you know, and you, you and I were just talking about this a moment ago. It's a power play and they need to make a case that there's an existential threat to the country that's only answered by giving us more power. And um, that's that's what we're witnessing going on. And I just think it's I just think it's grossly irresponsible to inflame uh, especially racial tensions in the service of that. So the one thing that I I majorly disagreed with that you said earlier, and and it's it's interesting because, you know, I got an email um yesterday yeah um after a fox news appearance and i hadn't gotten an email like this in a while um and i'm sure i think i saw it you tweeted about it right right yeah um and i'm sure there are probably some people in the daily caller audience who are like that guy is spitting he's right um but you know I, i mean to say that there are fewer racial tensions, you know, um, I think is is not true. Uh, I think that we are incredibly racially tense right now. Um, and I, I think that there's, you know, blame to go around for that. I don't think that there's this working class coalition that that 
I would love for it to be that, you know what I mean? I would love, you know, as someone who believes in social democracy, I would love for us to be able to put race to the side. And, and it's funny how many Republicans gaslight me when it comes, when I'm getting emails, uh, you know, telling me that there, there aren't enough George Zimmermans and that I'm a lying nigger and all the things that this guy said right you know um and you know i don't know if we have to yeah i'm, I'm gonna read the email because i i think it, it it illustrates my point um if you don't mind yeah go for it i mean it's vile just to be clear what you're about to hear i mean i don't know if anybody needs any more of a trigger warning than what you know that you already said the n-word so you know go for it yeah yeah, so sent me an email and literally I I don't even think I got off the air you yeah. know, before I got the email. Yeah. Like I don't even think I finished the hit. Yeah, I was in the middle of talking. It was a quick hit um, uh, on Fox um, and some guy named Wow. I mean, his name is up there on my Twitter. If you're if you're uh, interested, he's looked I looked him up. He's been a troll since 2013. So he's been trolling people. Yeah, apparently he's um, done this a lot to all sorts of people. Yeah, yeah. Oddly, I, I saw some stuff that like he's anti-religion too, which is weird. Well, it sounds know? like he's a crazy person, just to be clear. Yeah, I, I don't know that he's crazy. Um, I also, you know. Well, if you read, we'll if you, the email that you're about to read will uh, be highly suggestive of his mental state, I think. Uh, I think there are people who believe this, you know, who are not crazy, who own businesses and you know, like have kids and, you know, that's the thing. We can't sit here and this is what black people have been trying to tell our friends and allies who are not black. Like, yes, some of this is extreme, I, I will say, um, but to make it seem like it's such an outlier is wrong. You know, like, I can't tell you how many of these dozens I've I got particularly in the early days uh, of doing our mutual friend show. You know, I, I got them all the time. This was just a shock because I hadn't gotten one in a while. You right. know what I mean? Um, I think it slowed down because that mutual friend and I are, are, I think the audience could tell we were friendly. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like they could, they could see, you know, these guys actually like each other. And then it kind of slowed down. But in the beginning, when we didn't know each other very well and we were having these debates, it was really ugly, you know? And th this is, you know, kind of par for the course. So for me, it is like, you know, it is frustrating when people tell me, oh, there isn't race tension. Well, let me be, let me, let me be. Things, I think one Sorry. of the worst things for me to hear is like, Oh, you're keeping racism alive by talking about race. You know, that mm -hmm. that really, you know, is is really frustrating and hurtful. Now, I'm sure there's people in our audience who don't give an F if I'm hurt. And that's yeah. fine. You know, that's fine. I get it. So um, let me just make my point really clear. I didn't say that racial tension is low. That I didn't say that. I said that racial depolarization is definitely occurring, which means that um, we're not as polarized as a, on a partisan basis on race anymore as we once were, uh, that's decreasing. And that as an electoral matter has worked to the benefit of the Republican party 
because much of that racial depolarization has resulted in a multiracial working class coalition that has been voting for Republicans, especially over the last two election cycles. Now, the, on the issue of black voters, black voters still, of course, overwhelmingly by wide margins vote for Democrats. That's true. Um, although that is where they vote, whether it's 90 or 95 percent or 85 percent for Democrats, those five percent uh, differences matter a tremendous amount. The black vote broadly is one of the most determinative votes in the entire country. And if you sure. lose even 5% of the black vote, or if black voters just don't even show up on election mm. day, as Hillary Clinton learned, that's how, um, that that's, that's destiny. I mean, Donald Trump can win or lose on that basis. And he did, he won in thanks, thanks to the black vote, both black voters who voted for him and black voters who decided not to vote for Hillary. Donald Trump won in 2016. And so, so there's that element of the black vote. And then there's the Hispanic vote, which is becoming increasingly closer to 50-50 in the United States. And uh, right now, I believe it's in the vicinity of 65%, without looking at the numbers, who are voting for Democrats, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, 35%. I don't think that's really changed. That, it's that, that number's been around for a long time. The 2020 um, I, numbers have been dramatic, though, Jason. That, that shift especially in pivotal counties in Texas and Florida, uh, was eye-opening to strategists yeah. of both political parties who watched and they're like, whoa, this is not what we predicted. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, I think in terms of Florida, the idea was, of course, Cuban-Americans who dominate South Florida. Right. Um, you know, because North Florida is basically Southern Georgia, but Cuban Americans who, who dominate South Florida uh, are an older population. They're not really, it's not a young group. And so they, you know, the idea that Democrats had is we're gonna really take over in Florida for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, you know, a lot of uh, criminal justice reform and, you know, uh, giving the, you know, re-enfranchising, um, you know, people who have been convicted of felonies. Florida had some really tough laws uh, that kept people who had been convicted of a felony from ever voting. And those started to get overturned, but uh, Republicans were crafty and used everything in their toolbox the same way that Democrats are doing in Texas right now. They're using whatever they have in their toolbox. If there's anything that we learned from Mitch McConnell, it's use the tools that you have in order to make, in order to get the ends that you want. That's what Mitch McConnell did with Merrick Garland. That's what he did with Amy Coney Barrett. That's what he's done with all this legislation he's blocked. He uses whatever tools he has. He's a crafty old politician. And Republicans did that again when they said, okay, you can vote, but you have to pay all of your court costs and fines and et cetera, et cetera. Then the idea that Democrats were, were really optimistic about Florida was they thought Puerto Ricans, because so many Puerto Ricans had fled the island and moved to Florida. There were 900,000 Cuban Americans, but there were 800,000 Puerto Ricans. And Puerto Ricans, as you stated, were, were largely democratic. But the argument that I've made so many times to people that they did not account for. And this is why I tell you, um, 
one of these days, you Republicans out there who watch the Daily Caller and watch Fox News and watch every place that I go, y'all, y'all are gonna miss me when I'm gone. <laughs> You're gonna appreciate me <laughs> because I'm, I'm actually willing to come into these spaces and talk and, and have conversations. You yeah. may hate me. I don't know why, but you know, I can guess why. But that's another matter. But you know, you, some of you are gonna miss me when I'm gone because of the fact that you know, I'm not <laughs> part of the, the the cool Democrat club. Number one, I just became a Democrat in many ways. You know, I, I'm I'm not devoted to the party the way some other people are. Really, you and, just became a Democrat? I didn't know that. Yeah, I told you that last time. I registered as a Democrat. Oh, I oh. wasn't a Republican before. Um, I think I'm to the left of many Democrats. So, gotcha. like, um, sorry, I'm I not a good listener. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was an unaffiliated voter, but gotcha. the idea was that these Puerto Rican votes would cancel out the Cuban American votes. Mm-hmm. But the argument that I was trying to make, but people in the cool Democrat club don't listen to me. <laughs> um, I can't, I'm serious. Like I, I, I'm the kid at lunch. Like in, if this, if we wanted to imagine this as like a school cafeteria, yeah. I'm the kid that looks over, there's the Democrat side and they all turn their backs. And then I look over yeah. and I got my lunch tray at the Republicans and they all turn their backs and I have to sit and eat by myself. Oh, like Jason. that's, it, it's, it's a rough life, but I'll tell you this much. <laughs> um, you know, the Democrats that I talked to, I was like, you guys don't understand the Spanish language media infrastructure, the talk radio, the political radio, all of that. Yeah. The other people, even in conversation that they're going to have are going to be Cuban American and um, they're going to be Venezuelan American. And those people who saw Bernie Sanders and others as this big, scary socialist, right? Um, you know, are those people and their media is going to influence a lot of these Puerto Ricans. And you're not going to get the returns that you think you have unless you start investing in Spanish language media. They're not watching MSNBC because, you know, many people in Puerto Rico, I got family in Puerto Rico. They don't understand it. So they're listening to the same radio with some Cuban American guy who's conservative. And they're like, you know, that guy makes sense. That guy's making a good argument. Um, And what the Democrats thought was you show up two weeks before and start running ads on Spanish language radio. And that was going to sway people when they heard the media infrastructure in Spanish that is largely conservative over the last, you know, year or two, uh, being more on, on this on the conservative side of things. now, I'll take I'll take your word for uh, the, the Spanish media strategy and how Democrats should have managed it. I, my impression has been that like Telemundo and Univision were pretty uniformly anti-Trump. I may be wrong about that, but that was. They just the way that they handled a lot of the news about the Trump administration. Uh, that was my impression. I so okay. Go ahead. ahead. Explain no, if, I, if I'm wrong about that. Go ahead. Tell me. Tell me how. Well, I, you know, I watch Univision almost every morning because of my mother-in-law. Yeah, and I will tell you, um, they did have a lot of questions. Of course, you know, Jorge Ramos had his whole run-in with the. Yes. with the White House and all that, which I thought was pretty despicable, by the way, um, the way they treated Jorge Ramos. But 
you know, um, but at the same time, one of the things, because Univision is based in Miami, they are very anti-Castro, very anti-socialism, very anti-Maduro, very anti-Chavez, you know, um, because no one would watch if they weren't, you know, as interesting. We already talked about this is media um, because a large portion of their, um, you know, maybe if they were based in Houston, it would be different. Yeah. But they're based in Miami. So, that, that's interesting. That is interesting. So I, I, I think a lot of times and a lot of their talent, their on air talent would literally walk off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like their on air talent is largely now, I won't say largely, a lot of them are Cuban-American. Hmm. Um, so so I, I think that that was a, a, a big blow. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, here's the thing, though. I, and um, There's a Democratic strategist you may know, uh, David Shore, who's assessed this as well. And he looked back at, um, and he's an analytic, he's, a, he's an analytics guy. He studies elections, and he's been issuing a lot of warnings to Democrats about what's happening to their coalition. And when he focuses specifically on Hispanic voters, he points out some interesting phenomena. Uh, among them, if uh, when you poll test immigration policy, for instance, if you compare Donald Trump's immigration policies versus Joe Biden's immigration policies, if at a surface level, you can get people to say, Hispanics to say, oh, they're with Joe Biden. But when you start describing the differences between their immigration policies, Hispanics would always move in the direction of Trump, always. Um, when they were asked about these policies, including on things like illegal immigration, uh, Hispanic Americans do not support uh, by a majority um, citizenship for illegal immigrants who are in the United States. And uh, they but are, Joe Biden doesn't support that either. No, right. But Dem you know, some I'm Democrats like, do. Well, actually, Joe Biden does. He has an amnesty package specifically designed to do that. But uh, a pathway they don't support. You're saying that largely. Um, Latinos don't support a pathway to citizenship. Correct. For like for, for dreamers and, and people like that. For illegal that's immigrants. What Joe Biden, well, again, illegal immigrant, you know, I would say unauthorized or undocumented, but whatever. We can, right. you know, we can go with your term. Illegal immigrant can mean a lot of different things. Like I like I told you, and she's unashamed, uh, my sister-in-law is undocumented. She's a dreamer. She's been mm -hmm. in this country since she was three years old. She is so American, you know, that, I mean, she's not, she's nothing other than American, to be honest. Right. Um, so the idea that, are, are we sure that they're putting them all in one category? Most of the polls that I've seen, and I would have to pull it up, support dreamers having a pathway to citizenship now that's a specific but not, that's a but specific not somebody subset. who just yeah but not just somebody who just crossed the border but there's eight hundred thousand dreamers or something close to mm -hmm. that maybe more um I, I don't know if i could have that number correct i may be getting it mixed up but there are lots of dreamers out there i've taught a lot of them um who come as children and they are looking for uh, a pathway to citizenship. And I think most people support that. Um, I think, you know, when you say illegal immigrants 
broadly, that I think that doesn't take into account some of the nuances. If someone just crossed the border, no, I don't think there are any, even Democrats don't support, hey, let's just make that guy a citizen. You know, I, I don't know any Democrat who supports that. I don't support that. Democrat, uh, the current policy that Joe Biden has that he'd like to see passed is anybody who's been in the country as of January 1st of this year. So he's for anyone who has been in the country by the beginning of the year would be granted a pathway to citizenship. Um, and that is, they are- his, That's his current immigration package. So the, the bill that he wanted to pass was basically, yeah. if you came in after January 1st, no immigrant, no citizenship for you. That's that's essentially the terms of the deal. So to your point, that's kind of where he draws the line of recent arrivals. But anyone who's been in the country prior to January 1st of this year would be able to get a pathway to citizenship if his if his preferred legislation passed. Okay. Um, so I have to I have to check that out because I, I was I was under the impression, I know I've looked at some other plans. Um, that said, if you have been in the in the country for 10 years, um, that they're looking that you would get a pathway to citizenship. And okay. We're kind of fast track you. But I, I could be mixing something up, but it was like 10 years. And by the way, the majority of undocumented people pay taxes. So, um, you know, a lot of them, they'll have a record of paying taxes. Usually, you know, they have some falsified, you know social security mm -hmm. numbers or whatever, but the majority of them pay taxes in addition to sales taxes and other things. Um, you know, I think the last number I saw was about 70% of undocumented people pay taxes. So here's the Associated Press, just to give us a finer point on this. In February, Biden and congressional Democrats proposed a major immigration overhaul that included an eight year pathway to citizenship for the roughly 11 million people living in the United States illegally okay. so yes that basically anybody who's already here illegally if they made it in you know before a certain date uh beginning of this year as i understood it they would be eligible now to to the point that i was making before i'm going to quote from new york magazine if you don't mind this is david yeah. shore he's the elections sure. analyst and he was asked he was asked about hispanic voters um and isn't it the case, the questioner asked, that a majority of Hispanic voters respond negatively to immigration messaging? Is it? And Shore responds, no, I mean, Hispanic voters are more liberal on immigration than white voters. But I think that, for one thing, the extent to which Hispanic voters have liberal views on immigration is exaggerated. If you look at, for example, decriminalizing border crossings, that's not something that a majority of Hispanic voters support. Pew's done a lot of research, uh, a lot of polling on immigration reform. And if you ask things like, quote, should we deport the undocumented population? Should we give them a pathway to permanent residency or should we give them a path to citizenship? Citizenship only gets a little over 50 percent support among Hispanic voters. OK, so that's a correction of what I said before. So a, a slim majority of Hispanic voters support citizenship uh, for people who are already here. Um, so Shore says, I think liberals really essentialize Hispanic voters and project views about immigration onto them that the data just doesn't support. Right. I think that's absolutely correct. And this is why, and I wrote it in, a, in, a, in, a, um, in an op-ed, that what Joe Biden actually said about um, Latino voters being diverse 
is right. absolutely correct. They all have, you know, different interests based on where they came from, you know, um, to compare Cuban Americans to in, in South Florida to Mexican Americans in California to yeah. Puerto Rican and Dominicans in New York City and in Boston, like totally different um, viewpoints. Yes. Based on many different things. Um, and that diversity is growing. That's the that's the thing among Hispanic voters in the United States. And that's when I say when I say we're becoming more racially depolarized. That's one of the indicators. You know, right now, Texas is looking at redrawing some of these districts. And there are districts right now that are being considered in Texas that will be 70 percent Hispanic districts yeah. that are expected to be Republican districts. Yeah. Um, and so this is there's a there's a huge racial depolarization going on in the country. And I think that's a good trend. I think people should vote based on issues, not not based on racial categories. I, I, that's 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 the goal anyway. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, um, people are going to vote their interests. And um, there are certain groups of people who have similar interests, whereas yes. when we look at, you know, Latino voters, this is where I think, you know, the diversity comment as as opposed to black voters and, you know, non-black Latino voters, you know, and Latino, by the way, can be any race. They can be white. They can be black. They can be uh, Asian. Um, and so there are different interests that, that come into play there. Right. Uh, whereas African-American and even other black groups, whether they're Caribbean or whatever, um, you know, there's there's a belief in shared interests. Uh, whereas Latino voters, they have vastly different perspectives and vastly different, you know, diverse perspectives. And that's why when people got offended by that, I think maybe... And a lot of my friends got offended by that. And I was like, okay, let's not get offended by everything. You know what I mean? Let's pay attention to what he actually was trying to say, which is largely correct. Um, we can, you know, a lot of people were like, yeah, he was right, but he shouldn't have said it. Maybe, but this is, you know, this is the outrage culture. We can't always get outraged by everything. Um, especially when the underlying point was one that is correct. Um, and so I think that, you know, depolarization, it depends on how you define race. And again, race, this is the thing about race. It doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Like race really as a concept. Yes. Doesn't make sense. Yes. It's, it's this socially constructed con concept that doesn't really translate if you go overseas, you could, you know, you may be white one place and you may be black or not black, but you may be of another race, considered of another race somewhere else. Right. Race really doesn't make sense. It's not just the way you look. You know, I have a quick, funny story. I had this, uh, this one white student, great kid, you know, shout out to him if he's watching um, <clears throat> many years ago. But he comes up to me, he's like, dude, Dr. Nichols, dude. He started every sentence with dude. And then he said, dude. Like, dude, Dr. Nichols, dude. Rashida Jones is so hot, dude. And I was like, you know, she's black. And he was like, 
dude, Rashida Jones is not black, dude. And I was like, <laughs> how many white women do you know named Rashida? <laughs> you know I mean? And he was like, holy crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? She is black. But the point being, you know, if you looked at her appearance, I, I, I can tell you, regardless of who her father is, her father's Quincy Jones, but her father's probably the same, you know, I could be a young Quincy Jones, just slightly more handsome. Um, but if you took Rashida Jones to Brazil, doesn't matter who her father is, she's not black. You know what I mean? No one's looking at her as a black woman. She's not being perceived as a black woman. Mm. But in the United States, because of our one drop rule, we construct race differently. So race well, literally yeah, as a concept you, doesn't make sense. Except dude bro doesn't. Dude bro didn't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he, he didn't notice. But he got it. He eventually got it. But the, whole, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, just because something doesn't have a biological reality doesn't mean that it's not real. It has material reality in the lives, particularly of black people and of, and of some brown people and other people of different races. And that's what we're trying to get rid of. You know what I mean? I, you know, if, if we could have equality of, of opportunity and everybody has the exact same shot and we can actually cure these things, the way to cure that, the way to cure any illness, because I look at, at racism as an illness, is not to ignore that you have the illness. Right. So people are always like, you know, I have, you know, Republican friends and Republican haters, but, you know, I have some, you know, Republican friends other than Vince Colonnades. And they will tell you, you know, they're always like, yeah, but, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk about race. And I'm like, race and particularly not the existence of race, but the existence of racism is a cancer. You don't cure a cancer by ignoring that you have cancer. Yeah, but you the key is not to it. the key is not to misdiagnose. So in other like it, you're right, you're, you should totally focus on fixing problems that definitely exist. And race and the extent to which racism exists is is totally deserving of attention commensurate with its existence. So you can't look at every outcome. The mistake that like modern society is making is only judging outcomes and then saying, well, that's evidence of racism. Well, no, you have to like actually do the work you have to like take you have to examine whether or not disparate outcomes were actually motivated by racist sure. factors um because there's like a million every every outcome is multivariate i mean there's there's always going to be all sorts of reasons that something ends up looking the way it does you know whether oh, yeah. it be and and so like with that in mind there there's a there's a certain recklessness to the conversation about race that doesn't that that i think um, makes things worse rather than better. So what's really important is that we be precise in our language, that we be we be really exact about, okay, here's why I, I believe that um, that a toxic force has led to this outcome and making that case. And I think I think that's reasonable. But to basically ascribe racism to all disparities in outcome is a way to ignore the ways that we could actually fix some of those things. You know, I mean, no, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you this. Race can be a factor, but it's not the, it, you know, oftentimes not the only factor. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. So, of course, this is where this misunderstanding that people have of intersectionality, you know, 
you know, it could be, you know, somebody has, you know, worse outcomes because, you know, we can take a black trans person and I can't just be like, oh, it's because they're black. I think it's because they're black and trans probably, you know what I mean? Like there, there's multi or someone who's poor, black and trans, like it's all of those factors that play into you know, some of the outcomes that we have. And, and you and I, and one of the things that I, I give much respect to you, you, you never deny, or at least you often don't deny, um, you know, that there are issues with race that we need to, to look at, you know, I, I, we talked about maternal death and things like that. You oftentimes acknowledge that. And, and the thing, you know, I didn't even want to get off on a, on a race tangent. <laughs> you know, what, what I was actually going to say is that Latino voters, when polled, immigration is really low on their list of priorities. So one of the things, the mistakes that Democrats make is make it all about immigration when they're messaging to Latino voters. Mm -hmm. When it's like fifth or sixth. And when you go to certain parts of the country, you know, um, particularly you know, you're going to do border crossing and you're going to make that your message in the Northeast, where a lot of the people are, you know, Puerto Rican or Dominican. Puerto Ricans are citizens and Dominicans come over on planes or with visas. Like, that's not really going right. to to resonate the same way when you're talking about well, the, the mistake. The mistake that's made is assuming it's actually it is actually kind of a racism of its own kind, which is that there's a bigotry involved in assuming that because legal American Hispanics share the same skin color as illegal Hispanics coming into the United States, that therefore their issues must be the exact same. And right, it, but I would say they don't even share the same skin color sometimes. Yeah, you exactly. Know? No, you're, you're right. But you know, it, there's, there's it's so something... much nuance in, in Latino identity. Like, Yes. You know? And it's and it's it's reductionist. It's like boiled down to this very oafish interpretation. And it's it's very it's very strange that that's been the case. And look, look, look at this last election. You, how many border counties did you have in Texas where Hispanic voters moved dramatically in Trump's direction? Like, did that not send any flares up for Democratic strategists? They're like, wait a second. <laughs> maybe maybe we've been going about this the wrong way. Well, I think it's also um again and, and you know to give you you know and again I, i'm always scared that i'm gonna get some words off so i don't i'm not gonna say it directly but like i said in the last show that we did about the dr king quote it's not always if it's politics sometimes you know the conscious ass is, is it right so i think that there are people right. who, who are concerned <clears throat> with uh the border um, who I, who number one, don't serve border communities, you know, like, yeah, you know, a lot of people, I know she's a lightning rod on the right, but you know, AOC, you know, doesn't serve a border community. Right. Um, like Henry Cuellar, look at him in Texas. Like yeah, she's, he's a Democrat, he, Henry right. Cuellar, Democrat Congressman in Texas, who was furious that Kamala Harris wasn't coming to visit the border. He's been he can't even get a conversation with the White House. I mean, that is a dramatically different position to be in. Same political party, um, but radically different than where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's just take this real quick break and then uh, come back and finish this uh, this conversation. Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree with you um, that I think one of the things you're always going to have diversity of thought in any group. Um, there are, of course, uh, there's diversity of thought amongst, you know, African-Americans. There's diversity of thought amongst whites. There's diversity of thought amongst blacks, young people, old people. Sure. And I think people do resent being told what they should think or being insulted into yeah. saying that, that you should think those things. Right. Um, rather than making a sincere appeal. Yes. Um, and that's what I've said. You know, I, I think some people misunderstood when I was like, you know, Democrats need to go into West Virginia. You know what I mean? Like, yes. if you're a really progressive Democrat, you know, um, and to be honest, I'm going to keep it real with you. I, I go to West Virginia pretty often, you know. Um, Richie and I will be about, you know, 10 miles from West Virginia. And, and we go to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania um, is, you know, certain parts of Pennsylvania are just like West Virginia. Um, and I'll tell you, and, and Maryland, as a matter of fact that whole uh, tri-state area. And those areas, it's like Democrats act like they don't exist sometimes. Um, and it's good, it, it is true, you know, go to your base first, go to Philadelphia first, go to Baltimore first, go to Prince George's County first. Um, but I think that there's an appeal, a progressive appeal, you know, yeah. to be made to the working people of West Virginia. You know what I mean? And you may this is need a to bi go. This is a bipartisan yeah. problem, by the way, what you're talking yeah, about. You, they need to go into those communities. Yes. And I, I wish, I'm not the guy to do it, to be honest, and say what you want, but the guy who, who you know, gets called a lying nigger, you know, and all that, is not the guy to go into some of these communities in West Virginia. I'm just going to keep it real with you. Not saying everybody in West Virginia is racist or hateful, or I don't know where that guy's from. I think he's from Florida or Texas, but who wrote me the email, but I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, you know, the, the working class, what we, I, I'd say the party needs, if I were talking about the Democrats, they need a progressive JD Vance. They, the Democratic Party, and, and I've been saying this, it, it needs a guy. It was, it was something that Bill Clinton was able to do as a working class white guy. I think there are some from, people. I think there are some. The mud. There's some people like that. I, I mean, maybe an imperfect fit, but, you know, somebody jumps to mind when you say that is Ro Khanna. Um, yeah, no, definitely. But again, well, Ro Khanna is a man of color. Um, I think that there's an appeal that needs to be made to working class whites, to be honest. Um, that's the appeal that J.D. Vance is making, I, I believe. But I think there needs to be an appeal made specifically and in those communities and somebody who's willing to walk around and knock on doors and go to community meetings and all of that. There needs to be that grassroots um, way to uh, approach people. And so if you've ever heard of, you know, um, of, of course, you know, 
the Black Panther Party and um, Chairman Fred, um, Fred Hampton. He created the first, and again, there's no new Black Panther Party. Those, whoever calls themselves the new Black Panther Party are idiots, and they're not part of, they're, they're not connected at all to the legacy of the original Black Panther Party. But one of the things that Fred Hampton was able to do was he created the original Rainbow Coalition. He went in and he went and talked to, to working class white groups. You know, they had Confederate flags on the wall and everything, but he would walk in there and say, look, you're poor, we're poor. We may be a different kind of poor, but we're poor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there, there are things that we have in common. Maybe culturally we've got some differences, but we've got things in common that we should unify around. And he was able to get groups like the White Patriots, you know what I mean, to join that cause based on that. And there were, uh, you know, even older yes. American groups and Mexican-American groups. Now, granted, I know there are some people who are like, yeah, but they were socialists. That's true. But I think that there is an appeal for social democracy that can be made to these working class communities. And right. In other words, in some like cases. Yes. In other words, like people, if you're in similar economic conditions, then you can have shared interests on that basis. And then you should work to eradicate racial differences as a meaningful delineator in politics. I mean, I think this is what this kind of gets back to the point I was making about depolarization. Right? Like if you can appeal to their economic condition, especially an economic condition that's the product of the mistreatment of the ruling class, then that's an, that's a good thing. And you can actually form constructive political coalitions. No, I agree. The only, the only place where I disagree with you is that the idea that that happens organically, I don't think that happens organically. That happens with people going and making the case, you know? Um, and I really think, you know, that working class, uh, I think a working class white, it would, it would be awesome if it were a woman, but a working class white person who was, is willing to get on the ground, not just go on MSNBC, but get willing to go into those communities and say, look, we've got some issues here. I've got some solutions and, and they're progressive. And guess what? Your issues here in West Virginia are tied to the issues in West Baltimore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, and I think that that would be effective, particularly for the left. Yeah. It's just there aren't a lot of people who are willing to do that. There's a lot of suit and tie, you know, types who, who want to get in front. Now, of it's camp. really it's really hard. What What's hard is not I don't think race is the barrier. I don't at all, actually. Um, I think party is the barrier. People are suspicious if you are a member of the political party that they don't trust. Um, and. So like, you know, Tim Scott would be perfectly welcome in West Virginia making the case because of his party affiliation. It's not it's not I don't think it's in any way about race. Um, so. I, I that this is a difficult you don't think it's that in any way about race. No, I think it's pretty limited. Guy, I think it's pretty limited. The, the people who send me racist emails probably praise Tim Scott. So that's the nuance that people don't get. You know, they're probably like, Tim Scott's great. You know, uh, the the black 
voices. Uh, you know, Lawrence Jones is great. I love Lawrence Jones. I right. love Tim Scott. I love those guys. Jason Nichols is a nigger. Yes. Yeah, so I think I think that acting like that is a sign of of mental illness. But um, oh, I also no, think I, I also think that. I also think that sometimes people try and say vicious things to their political opponents that they think can hurt them. Right. So sure. I think that's, I think that's also part of that for sure. Um, I, but my point is it off on mental illness because I, you know, I have friends who are mentally ill respect to those mentally ill people. Racism is not a mental illness, you know, or, or, you know, well, you're not, of sound, of you're not of sound mind though. If you're, if, if that's where you go, if you, if you're spending your time, emailing people you see on television and saying such vile things. I'm sorry. That's not, that's not a sign of sanity to me. Um, yeah. I just, my, my only point is like, I, I wouldn't take and take that anecdote or the anecdote of any other person who said something vile to you like that as an indicator of where people are broadly. I don't think they are. Um, I don't at all. I mean, America's America is, I'm not making it all about me. I, I'm saying in general, you know, the idea, the same people you you saw on January 6th waving Confederate flags and, you know, hanging nooses and, and all of that, like, those are the same people who would probably pat Tim Scott on the back. You know what I mean? And I, I just think that there is, there's more nuance there than, than we're, we're adding. We think that racism is all, you know, I see some, you know, like like the the Peter Griffin thing where it's like they have the different shades. You know? It's like oh, you're past there, you're in trouble. The uh, um, the, the the paint samples, right? Right. So I, I think it's I think it's a little. Um, it, it's, it's not always the, the point you're making is it's not always explicit, and in some cases it, it exists in in more implicit ways. Um, I sure. got it. I, I just. You know, I but I I just think that the the other point that you made is 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 great, which is that there are ways to appeal to people across racial boundaries that should be the focus of our politics. I think um, that doesn't mean ignoring race entirely. It means addressing it when necessary. But like right now, the situation we're in is we have a government and a ruling class broadly that is focused on patronizing the public, censoring the public, not uh, selling out their jobs, um, pretending to represent woke interests while simultaneously exacerbating human rights violations in other countries, uh, misrepresenting facts to us, um, you know, not trusting us with information. There is a there is a, a, a sickness going on. And it's being led by a ruling class that is not in any way caring for the population that it's supposed to. And if voters can wake up to that fact across partisan lines, then we can actually accomplish what this show is setting out to do, I think. When we say Vincent Jason saved the nation, that's us being hyperbolic. Like we're not convinced sure. that we're not going to save the nation per se. But maybe yeah, especially we can not a with a thousand views on, on YouTube. No, that's right. anyway, <laughs> that's right. Especially not with a thousand views. But maybe like some kernel of our conversation can inform a greater one, which is that like neither political party is meaningfully serving us and instead is 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 overwhelmingly serving interests that work against us. And so with that in mind, like I think it's 
they deserve all the skepticism and cynicism that can be directed at them. And I mean that of both political parties. Uh, and, you know, I that's why I I hate listening to something like Joe Biden's speech yesterday, because I know what's happening. We're getting played again. We're getting played and we're being distracted from actually dealing with real issues. And instead, phony ones are put, being put in front of us and we're being told this is an existential threat to the country. Uh, and it's designed to distract us from what really matters, which is how we can how we can kind of push back against these these elites who uh, are have not been serving us. Well, I'll, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of truth to, to what you said. Um, and in terms of Joe Biden and understanding the how precious the right to vote is particularly for a group that's been systematically disenfranchised you want to talk about you know the civil war yeah um there was you know a 10-year period where black people's voting rights were more protected but we could debate that but basically from 1865 to 1965 those you know black people's votes well i guess uh 15th amendment was uh 1870 so from 1870 to 1965 95 years um you didn't have black votes really being protected and so one of the things that democratic voters who are you know the key demographic is black people Mm -hmm. They are saying to their uh, to their elected officials, protect my vote at all cost. Yes. And I think that's what Joe Biden is responding to. Yes. That's why he brings up the uh, the uh, imagery of the Civil War. And he was talking about the insurrection, which, you know, again, you saw a whole lot of Confederate battle flags flying. Uh, you know, a man walked in something that didn't. And this is, uh, you know, something that really resonated with a lot of us, a lot of people, not just black people, but a lot of people. Right. Um, seeing the Confederate flag flying in the Capitol, seeing a man walking around with a Confederate flag, something that didn't even happen during the Civil War. We didn't see it in many different places. And people saying, you know, one of the things I saw from a lot of conservative, you know, Twitter celebrities was Joe Biden compared us Republicans to slave owning Confederates, which was is not what he did. But what he <clears throat> what I would say is, OK, great. So I hope you will change all those military, all 10 military installations that are named after Confederates, you know, um, the one in Georgia um what's the fort in georgia is it it's not bragg it's what is it? i forget off the top of my head but i'll take it damn it why am i forgetting this person i know the person anyway was a was one of the founders of the ku klux klan never served in the u.s army and made a speech threatening to kill every single black person he said the 40 million of us will kill the 4 million of you um but yet 
there are black people Fort running Benning? Through... Is that what you're talking about? Benning, thank you. I knew it was a B. I was like, it's not Bragg. I know that. So, damn it, Benning. Um, you know, a guy who never served in the military, in the U.S. military. But then when you start talking about changing those names, those same people say, oh, here you go. This is just a woke exercise. As if symbolism yeah, doesn't matter. There's um so so this week in uh uh in Virginia you had um a couple of Confederate uh general statues taken down in Charlottesville, yeah. right? Yeah, and then mm -hmm. it subsequently the Charlottesville Charlottesville moved to take down a statue of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, which is like like okay, guys, like it's one thing to like remove Confederate uh Confederate statues, and they did it not by you know, not by tearing them down, but the city decided made it made a decision and they removed them, which is I think the proper way to do it instead of having a mob pull down a statue. Um, but then like you go like when when people make the slippery slope argument, it keeps on being proven correct. Like I, I don't know why people can't handle the nuance of all of this. Like if you want to remove Confederate symbols, especially Confederate symbols that were assembled in the middle of the 1960s as a counter reaction to the civil rights movement, if you can't remove things like that, that's insane. Of course, you can remove things like that because they were done to be a finger into the eye of the civil rights movement. And things like creating high schools and naming them after Confederate generals in the 1960s. Yeah. I, I don't care if we change those names. We should change those names. That's that's insane. Stuff that comes to us from the Reconstruction era and from the Civil War, I think you have a better case to be made that it has a historical element to it. It was in, and it is worth having those conversations. Okay, why does this exist? Where did this come from? That makes sense. But the idea that we would take down Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea and Teddy Roosevelt and statues of Frederick Douglass, what is wrong with us? Like, how are I, we I don't know who's taking down a statue of Frederick Douglass, but I there will, was, I will, the one in Washington, D.C., the but, one that, oh. Like there was an effort to take down the statue, excuse me, it was the emancipation statue that Frederick Douglass spoke at the dedication of. That, yeah, um, it was it was a uh, it was a black man kneeling at the feet of uh, of Abraham Lincoln. Correct? Yes, and he was rising from his bondage. But there was an the effort yeah. was to take that statue down. We've lost the so in the midst so, of this, I'm, my my only point is we are, we've become crazy like we've we've lost all of our perspective there's no nuance here and how can you talk about history if you don't even understand it yeah I, to be honest i'm not so sure that we should have statues of of any individuals that you know and that and that's just my honest answer um i'm not asking to remove anything i, I don't say let's remove the uh the lincoln memorial um or the the dr king memorial or whatever um, I think in the future, you're probably going to hear, oh, Dr. King was a womanizer. He did this. He did that. <laughs> They're yeah. going to want to remove that. But my thing is, this is why you don't have statues of individuals. You can have statues to events or statues um, or, or monuments to ideas, but not necessarily to individuals. But those people. It's just one of, one of my arguments um, that I've always made is if you want to have a statue of an individual, put it in a museum. Now, but. Frederick Douglass, by the way, was torn down in Rochester, New York uh, this past year. So July of this past year, there was a statue of Frederick Douglass torn down. And it's on it was it's just. What those, was the reasoning? Those ideas represent here's the NPR story, if, if you can see it. Frederick Douglass uh, statue torn down on anniversary of famous speech. Presumably it was what to the slave is the Fourth of July. Um, yeah, okay, so that was that was the address. Um, 
A statue of Frederick Douglass installed in 2018 to commemorate his 200th anniversary was ripped from its pedestal in Rochester, New York on Sunday, the 168th anniversary of one of Douglass's most famous speeches. The statue was found about Douglas lived in Rochester for decades. The statue was one of 13 monuments to him, to him erected throughout the city. The statue was found about 50 feet away from its base in Maplewood Park, just beyond a fence near the Hennessy River Gorge. It, quote, had been placed over the fence to the gorge and was leaning against the fence, Rochester police said in a statement. A finger on the statue's left hand was damaged, as well as the lower part of the statue and its base. Um and so here in the piece, they're wondering whether or not, quote, is this some type of retaliation because of the national fever over Confederate uh, monuments right now? It's beyond disappointing. They never publicly identified any suspects. Uh, but we have seen um, left-wing activists in particular go after the emancipation uh, statue in, um, in Washington, D.C., again, at which Frederick Douglass dedicated it. But this... Um, this, uh, you know, this this quest to pull down statues, I just think it's completely, it's bad. I, I actually think statues are a good thing. Like I, I've, statues are a good way to represent ideas. Like to walk past the statue of Frederick Douglass and to be able to explain to your children who he was and what he believed in is a way to make an idea more resonant than to merely make a, a monument right. that doesn't have now, a person on it. Now there's a there's a troubling element to that. Why did we get all these Confederate statues? And this we can tie it all together. I know um, we're we're kind of winding down, but really yeah. quickly, um, one of the reasons we have all these statues is because of the daughters of the Confederacy. You know, um, they decided because all these Confederate soldiers at the turn of the century were dying. And they wanted this idea to remain. And one of the reasons that they did it was the education of the masses and the education of children was to lie about the Civil War and to say, you know, to, to teach what was known as lost cause history. Mm -hmm. And that lasted literally until the late 70s. You know, some of our parents were educated in lost cause history. Part of the major elements of lost cause history was the, the uh, Civil War was not about slavery. It was about tariffs or whatever, you know. And so you got all these statues throughout the South and either even other parts of the country commemorating um, these uh, Confederate soldiers. Um, and it was in an attempt, in many ways, it's the same principle that Saddam Hussein used by putting up statues of himself or Kim Jong-il used to put up statues of himself um, in order to inform the way children look and, and venerate him and his ideas. Mm -hmm. That's a dangerous thing to have here in the United States. We, I, 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 there, there are times where we get it right, but there are times where we get it wrong. And yes, there's an overcorrection in terms of that. That's why I think have a statue you know, have a monument to the civil rights movement. You know what I mean? It wasn't just about Dr. King. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's right. part of the problem, so, I think. So that's why my, when we talked about Diane Nash, no one knows who Diane Nash is. My point, like, my my point though is in the wake of the Civil War, the Reconstruction era, you see these commemorations of of civil war of Confederates going up. The the reason, in no small part, is that the South doesn't exist in everlasting shame in the United States. 
So the, they're trying to figure out a way to keep the country together in the wake of the Civil War. And so there are dedications done to Confederates in the wake of that. So now with the benefit of hindsight, so you and I can look back on that and we can think of, of course, the scourge of slavery and the horrific uh, uh, institutions that the Confederates were looking to protect and, uh, and how they were rightfully brought down courtesy of the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, and much longer over time, the Civil Rights Act. It just if you're looking back at history in the wake of that era and the attempts to try and hold the country together and what the South did to soothe its own conscience, it's at least worth talking about those things and not just erasing them. You know, it's, you know what I mean? The effect of like, for instance, uh, there have been towns in our area that have gotten rid of um, slave auction blocks. They've removed them from the town. And for 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 well over a century, 150 years, they've been landmarks where you can go and you can appreciate the darkness of that moment's history of that location's history. But now you can't do that because it's been removed. This is how little sense we have. We haven't thought it through. So I and, think those are two different things. Yeah. There's a, there's a difference between a statue and a monument. You know what I mean? Or, or a landmark and a monument. A monument means you're venerating it. And that's what you got with those Confederate statues. That's what you got when you have uh, General Lee or, or Stonewall Jackson high on their horse, you know, in the middle of Charlottesville, or you get, uh, you know, some of the, the statues. That's what you get when you walk into Fort Benning and the, the sign says Fort Benning. You are venerating the person, you know, rather than saying slave auction block. Here's our big plaque about what that was was yeah. and how it was yeah. a dark moment in our history. There yeah. are things like the 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 um I always mispronounce the the town in uh in Florida, Okoe. Okoe. Uh, I always mispronounce it. Um, because I've only heard it pronounced a bunch of times, but I've read about it all the time. <laughs> but where there was a huge massacre of black people, um it's not, you know, talked about often and they just put a plaque up to commemorate the, the hundreds of black people or right. uh, dozens of black people who were killed. One of the things people don't know is a lot of the man-made lakes, Lake Lanier, where people keep, we always joke, the African-American community has always had a joke about Lake Lanier. If we have anybody from Georgia, they probably know, you know, like there's always uh, piers collapsing and boats, exploding and people drowning and things like that. And that's because Lake, Lake Lanier was once a black community where they literally flooded it and took away these people's homes and people were killed. And the whole thing is, you know, the, in the black community, the joke is those are those people who are underneath Lake Lanier pulling people down, you know what I mean? Because it was so disrespectful and we don't remember it, uh, remember it and uh, honor that community, that black community that existed where Lake Lanier, and there are literally dozens of lakes all, all over the country where they literally flooded black communities to have uh, places of recreation for the surrounding white communities and destroyed homes that people owned. Um, so my point in all of that is, yes, we need to remember that there should be signs everywhere in Lake Lanier. There should be tours of Lake Lanier talking about sure. what actually happened. And in, and in other places where um, things have happened, 
you know, just like we do with, you know, the Revolutionary War, there's got to yeah. be plaques all over Bunker yeah. Hill and Concord and Lexington. Those those are important things. Right. But to have a statue of an individual and venerate an individual, I think should be in a museum. Look, I'm open minded. You know? I'm, I'm entirely open minded to the line of reasoning you're making. I am. Believe me. I just think that the the uh, the appetite for destruction is um, is and was uh, destructive for our country. It's not good. So the idea that you would argue and, and say we should move something to a museum, I, I'm perfectly on board with that conversation. I think that's really reasonable. And and so the effect should not be, though, to erase that there was a moment in our history where somebody thought it was appropriate to put that statue up in the in the immediate wake of the Civil War as a way for people to soothe their conscience about uh, the nature of of the moral battle that they were in but and the, the real the, battle the, they were in. The vast majority of those statues, as I, as I said, went up at the turn of the century. They went up in, in the early 1900s because those Civil War veterans were dying and they mm -hmm. wanted to be remembered positively. Um, and the Daughters of the Confederacy, yeah, they were the women's so advocacy group that did that. It wasn't in the immediate wake. And again, even still, you know, in terms of unifying the country, I hate to say it, but maybe some of the, the people who made those decisions in trying to unify the country, which I think they did a whole lot of things wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, arguably we're still not unified because some of the mistakes that they made. But I think that there are lots of things that they could have done instead of venerating the people who were traitors against the United States of America and wanted us to not be united uh, as the United States of America. We don't, we should not praise that. We should not venerate that. Um, I think there's no country in the world that tried to rise up or separate, you know, you don't find in Ireland uh, statues of people from North Ireland. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I'm just throwing things out. You don't go to, to Ethiopia and find statues of, of people, Air, people who fought for Eritrea. You know what I mean? Like it, it just doesn't happen only in the United States. Um, do we do that? And I think there's a way to remember the, the civil war in context. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are institutions where we can do that. Yeah. I mean, somehow we fought a civil war that resulted in more deaths than any other battle we've ever engaged in in American history and um, held the country together. And it became a, a pretty flourishing uh, true uh, shining beacon for the world in the wake of all of that. It's taken a lot of struggle. It's taken a lot of time, uh, but yeah. it it's, you know, that I, I, I really, I don't think it's, it's a simple thing to assess, but somehow you and I began this conversation in Philadelphia and we ended in the reconstruction era. So I think this is a, probably a good jump off, jumping off point. Um, thank you as always to Jason Nichols. Good conversation. If you'd like to hear more of these conversations, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, it is available at Vincent Jason Save the Nation, wherever podcasts are found, including on the Daily Caller's YouTube page. Subscribe, like, comment, and share. It'll make sure that more people can hear good conversations that are dedicated to doing what we want to do, which is simply to save the nation. Thanks, Jason Nichols. Thank you.